and um, I hope you've been blessed by the series so far. I've certainly been blessed by the book of Galatians, by Steve's preaching, and by my own study. I, just to let you know, at the end tonight, I don't plan to speak too long, I always say that, but I really don't plan to speak too long tonight, and I plan for there to be a short time at the end before we pray in small groups for us to ask questions and give any comments or any feedback. So we'll do that at the end. Question for us, how do, how do we know that the Holy Spirit is present in a particular church, any church? What kind of signs should we look out for if we wish to see that the Holy Spirit is working amongst those people? Do we look for spiritual gifts and the exercise of these gifts? Do we look for powerful conversions and dramatic changes in people's lives? Do we look for lots of emotion and lots of noise? Do we look for loud music and lots of hands in the air? Do we look perhaps for multitudes of people? Do we look perhaps for charismatic leaders who've got lots of words to say about everything and do it with style and vigor? Do we look for manifestations of supernatural things? speaking in tongues and miracles and things like that. Is that evidence that the Holy Spirit is working in a church? I'd like to suggest to you tonight that it's not these things in themselves. Some of them may not be bad. I would love to have multitudes of people coming to hear the word of God. But it's not these things which make a church a holy church. You can have many of these things for the church to be still utterly worldly and carnal. It strikes me that the defining quality of the church of Jesus Christ is holiness in a body of people. And you find this, when you find Christians living by faith, not living by the law, not living by works, but living by faith in Jesus Christ, you will see increasing holiness. You'll see a measure of it, and you'll see it growing and increasing in that body of people. That is one of the things you can say about these people. They are a holy people, whatever else they may be. And as I was trying to explain last week in my kind of long-winded way, holiness in the Bible is something which comes from within. So God declares us holy. He, He justifies us through faith in Jesus Christ. He says, I declare you legally righteous. Your sins are dealt with, and we can come into his presence. But then after that, God starts that work of sanctification whereby the Holy Spirit, over a lifetime with many struggles, works in the heart of a person to make them more like Jesus Christ. And that can be faked, but that fakery will not last. Remember, I gave the example last week of a lemon tree in an orchard. It's actually an apple tree. You can go and festoon it with lemons, hang lemons from the branches. But sooner or later... The real fruit, the apples, will come on that tree. And the lemons, because they have no vital life in them, will drop off the tree and rot away in the grass. And it's the same for a person who reforms their character, the outer character, perhaps through some kind of fear or perhaps some some kind of desire to get something from God. They whitewash the outside of the tomb, to use a different analogy, but inside it's still rotten and corrupt and trusting in its own works and actually far from God. And that outward facade sooner or later will crumble and the real self will come through. Holiness is something which comes from the inside, which God produces by his Holy Spirit. 
There's this verse in Titus 2. Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. That's what Christians should be, isn't it? We should be eager to do what is good. We don't always do what's good. We struggle. But deep within our hearts, we, we, our hearts are transformed. We want to do what's good. We're eager to do what pleases the Lord. Last week, we touched on this, this struggle with a sinful nature, that old man, that old sinful self, that selfish thing, which is still part of us, even though it's been dealt with. When we put our trust in Jesus Christ, that sinful nature, in a sense, is crucified and its back is broken. It no longer dominates us. And yet, as we know, it still often rears its ugly head and comes back to haunt us, as it did with me this afternoon. The Christian is somebody who wants to do good, earnestly, deeply. They want to do what pleases the Lord, and yet sometimes they struggle. And that grieves them, because if only I could be more holy, if only I could be more like my Lord, why on earth did I let him down again? I know better than this. This is not who I am. I'm a Christian. And Christians do not behave like that. I've been bought at a price. I'm not my own. Therefore, I ought to honor God with my body. We also looked last week at the idea, briefly, of being led by the Holy Spirit or living by the Holy Spirit. This is the the idea of a Christian who, though, though imperfect, is living every day, seeking the Lord's help to crucify, to put to death the sinful nature and to live according to the word as revealed to us in the Bible. Today we're talking about something rather different. I want to actually pick up from the previous chapter, chapter 5, verse 26. It says this, let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. So obviously it seems to me that in the Galatian churches there was, there was, there was a danger that this was happening. There was a kind of conceit growing up amongst people, a kind of pride And because of that, people were provoking each other and envying each other in the churches. Is this how Christians should live and act towards other Christians? If the Holy Spirit dominates our hearts, and if the Holy Spirit has filled our hearts with the love of Christ and grace, this forbids any kind of rivalry or tension or conceit or envy in the church. You know, there's two types of pride, two types of conceit. Well, there's one type of pride, but it manifests itself in two different ways. One way is that it makes somebody feel very, very superior to other people. Look what I've attained. Look how holy I am. Look how special and gifted I am. The tendency is to look down on others and provoke them because you want want to have an opportunity to prove how clever you are and how superior you are to them. The other manifestation is to kind of have this kind of false inferiority complex where you you sometimes get this, don't you? I'm more prone to this than the former, where you you think, oh, I'm so humble, I'm such a bad person, I'm not as good as the next person. Actually, it's a kind of pride because you actually end up envying other people. Thinking, I'm so important, why hasn't God given me this gift? Or why hasn't God put me in this position? You start to envy others because you think God has blessed them more than you or gifted them more than you. Both are forms of pride expressing themselves in different ways. Either I'm better than you and I'll prove it to you, or you're better than me and I resent you for it. You know what it says in Romans 12? Do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourselves with sober judgment. 
How important it is, isn't it, as Christians to understand our unworthiness, our wickedness, our waywardness, and God's grace towards us. If we understand that, it's very, very difficult to be proud and conceited, isn't it? You know, we are, we are blessed people because God has been gracious to us and hasn't abandoned us to our sin. What reason have we got to be proud? Every good thing we have has been received from God as a gift of his grace. Let's not be like this as Christians. I, we're all guilty of it. Well, not all of us, but I'm, I'm certainly I'm provoking people and envying people. We need to look at ourselves in the light of what God's word says about us and say, I am saved by grace. There's no room for pride or conceit. Now, moving on to chapter 6. Now, this is a really serious word. Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. But watch yourself, or you may also be tempted. Now, I have no idea why Paul starts talking about this at this point in the letter of Galatians, but this is obviously addressing a particular reality in the Galatian churches. The word caught here actually means being taken unawares or being caught unawares or being taken off guard. So I don't think this is saying that this person, this individual, has been caught in the act of a sin necessarily. It's not like you know one of those films where there's a raid on a house and you find a load of people doing some illegal money laundering or something like that. It's not, it's not about that. But somehow or other, this Christian has been caught in a sin and it's come to light to so the whole church. This person has done something which is rather disgraceful and shameful. Now, Paul could perhaps have in mind here the Judaizers in the church, the kind of people who are peddling this false doctrine that you had to be circumcised in order to be made right with God. But I don't think it reads like that. I don't think it reads like somebody who's gone doctrinally astray. This is talking about somebody who's been caught in some kind of gross public sin. And the church has found out about this. And why this is serious is because we're talking here about real people's lives. And what we hear tonight from God's word may affect us if we ever find ourselves in a situation like this. And that's why it's very important we understand what God's word is saying to us. Far be it from me to say anything which is not in God's word or which is contrary to God's word. So I do pray that you'll, tonight we can come to a consensus about what this actually means and how we ought to deal with this. If the situation should arise, it's vitally important we deal with it in a biblical way. Some people have been enormously scarred and hurt over the years because the church has failed to deal with situations like this in a biblical way. Praise God, his word is very practical and his word gives us guidance about dealing with situations like this. And we can never ever say this could never happen here. I've been in churches where, I've been in a church where the pastor, the the assistant pastor, left his wife and two children and went off with a woman in the church who left her husband to be with him. That hit that church like like an atomic bomb. The shock, the hurt that someone would do this. This is a very, very real thing that happens in churches. It may not be something so severe as that, but there needs to be a biblical way of dealing with this in order to minimize hurt and try to help that person, the people involved in the situation. Now, what's encouraging about these verses is that you might read last week's chapter and conclude that real Christians shouldn't sin at all. Look at verse 21 of chapter 5. 
So Paul lists this great big list of acts of the sinful nature. And he says, I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. So a Christian who sins, who falls into sin, might go away and say, it's too late for me. I've lost it. I've sinned, and therefore there's no place in the kingdom of heaven for me. But the good news is that Paul goes on in chapter 6 to talk about the sinning Christian, which gives us evidence that a real Christian, a true Christian, may sin, may fall into sin, may struggle with sin, and yet there is still hope, there is still restoration available for that person. It's not the end. The gospel is not some kind of law, is it? Like where if you break that, you're out, you're finished. There's always a second chance for the repentant sinner, and there's always grace. The sin that's spoken of here in chapter 6 is not some kind of calculated sin, premeditated sin that somebody's been planning and goes ahead and does. This is something that somebody's fallen into. I know there's a wrong way of using this this term, falling into sin. We choose to sin, don't we? Nobody made us do it. We all choose to sin if we give into it. But this is talking about a genuine Christian who loves the Lord, loves his people, and yet, for whatever reason, finds himself taken off guard. He stumbles and loses his way. That's what the word he actually means. He stumbles or loses his way. He disgraced himself. You know what? This is not what he really wanted to do. In his heart of hearts, he wanted to honor the Lord, but yet somehow he slipped and stumbled. He was overcome by his sinful nature. Recently, I was, I was reading about a pastor in, I think it was in South Korea, and he was in trouble for embezzling money from the church. The founding pastor of the world's largest Pentecostal congregation has been sentenced to three years in prison for embezzling 12 million US dollars in church funds. That church had one million members. It may still have one million members. That man went to prison because he fell in a very spectacular way. And there have been countless stories like this. It doesn't always have to be on this scale. It could be a very small, minor thing in the world's eyes. But isn't it sad? Isn't it sad when this happens? to a person. Verse 21, we we talked about this. Does that mean that he won't inherit the kingdom? No, it doesn't. Because hopefully for that person, it's not the normal way of life for them. Have you seen that? That's an aberration for that person. That's not how they want to behave or how they normally behave. It's not a way of life. It's not a constant practice. You know, friends, the Christian life, as I understand it, is like a rocket on the launch pad. That rocket is programmed to get to a particular destination, let's say Mars. And unless there's some kind of disaster, that rocket will reach its destination because it's programmed to do so. Now, we know in real life, rockets don't always reach where they're supposed to go. But let's assume the rocket will get to its destination. The Christian life is like that. Once God has started you on that path and given you the Holy Spirit and sealed you for eternity, you will get to your destination. If you're a true Christian, born again by the Holy Spirit, you will, sooner or later, you will get to the place where God wants you to be, which is the kingdom, heaven. Not everybody would agree with that. I believe that's what the word teaches. You might be led off course for a bit, but God has a way of bringing you back time and time again to the right path where you should be so that you reach the destination for his glory. 
It's like one of those, you know, there's like lifeboats that are self-writing. The lifeboat goes over in a storm, but it writes itself time and time again. Christians struggle, Christians fall, Christians make mistakes, but yet they, they get up time and time again because God's grace enables them to do so. And the church has a key role in this. The church of Jesus Christ is there. One of the reasons of the church, one of the functions of the church is to bring sinners back and to restore them and put them back on the right path. So a Christian will reach their destination. So we need to be, be sure of that. If somebody goes off completely and departs from the Christian faith, that is probably evidence that person was never saved to begin with, truly saved. Now, if such a person sins, is caught in a sin, is overcome by sin, what does he need the church to do for him, his local church? Does he need everybody to come together and say, it doesn't matter, it doesn't really matter what you've done? Does he need everybody to gang up on him and put the boot in and say, you know, how dare you do that? You're a disgrace. These are two wrong approaches that churches use when confronted with problems like this. One is just to say it doesn't really matter, which probably many churches do today in our country. The other thing is to kind of show no grace whatsoever, no mercy, and just completely condemn him and write him off. Now, if the sinner is unrepentant and hard-hearted, that's a different matter. Phil was recently talking about church discipline. This is not a pleasant subject, but it's necessary. The, the purity of the church must be maintained. And if someone is unrepentant, there might need to be harsh, harsher, not harsh, but there might need to be more severe methods of purifying the church and warning that person, church discipline. But if that brother comes and he is devastated by his sin and he is grieved by his sin, and he realizes the mess he's brought himself into, and he's realized the damage it's caused to the church. Because you know what? Every time we sin publicly, it damages the church, weakens the church, weakens our witness. You know that person, he's not just sorry that he's been caught either. You know, when my children misbehave, sometimes they cry when I reprimand them, but it's because they've been caught, not because they're truly sorry for the sin. And a true Christian, if he's caught in sin, he doesn't just feel sorry because everybody else has found out and he's lost his face in the church, lost face. He's sorry because he's grieved God and he's been sorry because he's hurt his brothers and sisters who are precious to him. So I want you to look at this. So in verse 1, brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. So what Paul is saying here is that spiritual people should come alongside this person in his hour of need and try to restore him. Have you seen how important the local church is? When somebody sins, they have, have the chance to kind of withdraw from the church and go and find another church where nobody knows who they are. Or they could just kind of go and not go to any church at all, listen to a sermon on the internet at home. But that's no way to live, is it? Go and live in darkness and hide in darkness where nobody can see you. The answer surely is to remain in your local church, confess your sins and ask for forgiveness. And if your church is a biblical church, a godly church, they will welcome you with open, open arms and say, what you've done is, is bad. But we forgive you. We have grace for you. That pastor of my old church, he never, as far as I know, never repented. He said, I believe God has told me to marry this woman and he went off and he married her. And as far as I know, he's pastor of another church somewhere. How good it would have been for him to have been able to stay in our church and receive forgiveness and the restoration of God's people. 
I understand it's very difficult to do that when you've fallen, but wouldn't that have been a lovely thing if he'd been able to receive the grace of his fellow Christians, not just done a run somewhere else where nobody knew him? If you are not meeting with local Christians, who is there to carry your burdens? Who will care about you enough to challenge you about your sin if you're not part of a local body of believers? Go to a great big massive church where nobody knows you, just a face in the crowd. You don't really speak to anybody. Who will know you enough and care about you? It's like a local group like this, of people that really love you, care about you deeply. When Paul talks about spiritual people here, he doesn't mean a kind of special class of people, super spiritual people. There aren't, there aren't two classes of people. We need to lose this notion there are two classes of people in the church, spiritual people and carnal people. All Christians are spiritual. There are immature Christians, young Christians, but we all ought to be spiritual people, not carnal people. Now, noisy. When he talks about spiritual people here, Paul's talking about people who are living and walking by the Holy Spirit, like we looked at last week particularly those in the church with particular wisdom and experience who can help and deal. That's why we have elders in the church. These, these are wise men who have lots of experience in dealing with issues in the church. And when something like this happens, the elders particularly, but not just the elders, the whole church, people who are walking with the Lord, walking in line with his word, seeking to, to please the Spirit and live by the Spirit and walk in step with the Spirit, these people should be able to come around this person, this fallen brother or sister, and offer grace and forgiveness and restoration and advice and comfort and counsel. That's what he's talking about when he talks about spiritual people. He's not talking about, it's not some kind of ironic sense, you spiritual people or some kind of special class of people. It's all the body of believers. We are the spiritual ones, or we should be. It says, you should restore that person gently, chapter six, verse one. Do you know that word restore there is, is, it's a word used in, in the, in the Greek, to mean um, setting a broken bone or mending nets. In other words, putting in order something which was out of order. And if, if such a situation should arise, what the church ought to do is to help that person, that sinner, evaluate what's happened. Come to terms with it. Don't minimize it. We don't condone it. We don't say it doesn't really matter, like some churches do. We need to help that person confess it, Assure him of our love and forgiveness and help him move on. You know, when we sin, there are always consequences of sin. Sometimes Christians have to live all the rest of their lives with consequences of sin. But there is forgiveness and God can give a measure of restoration and healing. The church's job here is to restore that person back to a state of normality, back on the right course. The church can be used as part of this process. The church should be gentle. Sometimes the church needs to be robust, but never harsh, never cruel, always gentle. Look at Jesus Christ, our Savior. Look how gentle he was and is, and yet how robust he was at times. The two things are not mutually exclusive. Think about the woman caught in adultery. Pharisees and others dragged her before Jesus saying that she should be stoned to death. Probably the most famous example in the Bible of, of the Lord's mercy to a, to a sinner. He saw that woman was broken. He saw that woman was devastated. He was gracious to her. He didn't 
condone the stoning of her. And he would have been within his rights to do so, but yet he was so gracious to her. He was gentle with her. And I bet you that woman's life was never the same again. She was transformed by the grace of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 talks about a situation like this where somebody has sinned and has come to light. Paul says this, So instead you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Therefore I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. Please let me ask you, if you ever find a situation where a brother or sister has sinned like this, please reaffirm your love for him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow and be gracious to him. Try to help him see a way out of this mess and try and help him get back on the right path again through using the word of God. Coming back to Galatians chapter 1, there is a warning here in, in chapter, one, sorry, chapter 6 verse 1. Watch yourselves or you may also be tempted. I was thinking about this. Why should helping a sinner, somebody who's sinned, why should it mean that we also should be tempted? So, for example, if a man is found in sexual sin, adultery, does that mean that if I try to help him, I also will be tempted in particularly that same area? Is it like the Ebola virus? Do you remember that British nurse who went out to help um, people with that virus and she ended up contracting the same disease she went to try and help fight against? No, I don't think it means that. I don't think it means we will be subject to exactly the same temptation if we try to help somebody. What it does mean, though, is that we know, don't we, all too well, the temptations, the weaknesses of our own hearts. And in trying to help a brother who has sinned, none of us can take the moral high ground. None of us can be conceited. None of us can look down on him. That's why Christian community does not come down upon a sinner like a ton of bricks. Because we know the grace of God. We know, as I said, the weaknesses of our own hearts. We know how prone we are to temptation. We've fallen a thousand times and God has graciously restored us time and time again. None of us can say it could never happen to me. So we come to that person as fellow sinners. It's not like the Pharisees with the stones in their hands ready to, to stone that poor woman to death. As I said, remember how merciful God has been to us. Look at verse 2. It says this, Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. 1 Peter 5, 5 verse 7, I think it is, and it says, you know, Cast all your burdens onto him, for he cares for you. Isn't that a very Christ-like thing to do, to carry our burdens for us? Well, Christians are instructed to also carry each other's burdens. The word here literally means a heavy burden. Something which is very difficult to carry. If I were to go to London Road and I saw an old lady struggling with an extremely heavy case and I saw a group of young men just watching her and just watching her struggling to try and get it onto a coach or something like that, I'd say, that's, that's not very nice, is it? These young men should be willing to help. Unfortunately, it doesn't always happen. Watching somebody struggling with a burden when you have the means to help them, it's not a kind thing to do. Think about the Judaizers, the circumcision party. They've been adding burdens to these people who've been free in Christ. Paul says here, actually, carry each other's burdens. You'll fulfill the law of Christ. So friends, although as Christians we do not have the ceremonial law, we do not have circumcision, we do not have holy days, what we do have are the moral obligations, the moral law, which can be summarized like this, love your neighbor as yourself. 
that summarizes and encapsulates the whole law of God. And if you're doing that, you're very close to doing what God wants you to do. Now, that's not a law, that's not a burdensome thing because God has transformed our hearts. As I said last week, he's made us inclined to do that. He's set his love upon upon us and we also have love in our hearts for our brothers and sisters. It's a very good thing to do, to help each other at times of need, times of crisis, rather than standing by and letting people struggle alone. We can see the grief that sin has brought to a person. We want to help. I think this is not just talking about these great, big, massive sins like this, but it's talking about everything. Griefs, temptations, worries, concerns, doubts, sorrows, the kind of stuff that we all face on a daily basis, on a regular basis. Burdens. The Christian church should be a place where we are helping each other carry those burdens, as I understand it. I would like us to be, I believe we are, and I would like us to continue to be a church where we are not unconcerned about our fellow believers. We can't just assume it's none of our business. We're not just, you know, islands in the stream, are we? We are, we should be intimately connected one with another. When my brother is struggling, I'm also to struggle as well alongside him, trying to help him carry his burden, being there, a listening ear, Encouraging words, prayer, support in times of crisis and need. Is our church involvement enough to really sustain these kinds of relationships? I want to put it to you, if your church involvement is very sporadic and very piecemeal and you you hardly ever come and meet with God's people, it's very, very difficult to build those kind of relationships where you know people well enough and care about them enough to actually have some kind of meaningful interaction where you can carry their burdens, where they can carry your burdens. If you never really get to know people, it's very, very difficult to actually be able to do this. That's why we need to meet together regularly and to have fellowship and to look out for each other and help each other carry each other's burdens. Now look at chapter, verse 3. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Just come back to that idea of conceit and pride in the church. Now, I think what he's talking about here is that somebody who is trying to help a fallen sinner has some kind of pride or conceit because they feel either that they're too spiritual to help this person who is struggling, or they feel morally superior to them. Look, I'm not like them. I haven't sinned like they have. Perhaps they feel it's beneath them to help this person. Paul says this in verse 4. Each one should test his own actions, then he can take pride in himself without comparing himself to someone else. Comparing ourselves to other people is, to use our Essex phrase, a mug's game. It's misplaced. There's no call for that in the Christian life. That is not the standard in which we judge ourselves, by which we judge ourselves. How I compare to other people. How well am I doing compared to others? You might be, compared to your, the other Christians around you, you might be head and shoulders above the rest in your spiritual progress. Well, praise God, because God has done that in you. And God has given you everything good. There's no grounds for pride. You can see. You know, that's a kind of law-keeping, isn't it? You know, trying to establish your own righteousness by how good, how well you perform. You know, the standard by which God will judge us is God's word, the Bible, not by how, how well we compare to other people. 
Verse 4, again, each one should test his own actions. We should test our own actions. In other words, be more concerned about how we're walking and living with the Holy Spirit and living for God. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't be concerned about the sins of other people. We should, as I just said, we're part of a body and a community. But it does mean that our own spiritual progress should not be measured by, as I said, by how we compare to other people in the church. We should spend more time looking at God's word and seeing how we measure up than by looking at others. When it says in verse 4, then he can take pride in himself, I don't think that means literally we go away and we're, we're kind of proud and conceited because I measure up rather well according to God's word. So if we look at God's word, actually every time we'll see that we fall short of God's glory and God's standards. Now, look at verse 5. It says this, for each one should carry his own load. Now, if, you, if you're like me, when you first read this, you might think, well, it says in, in verse 2, carry each other's burdens. And here it says, each one should carry his own load. There's an apparent contradiction. But the, the actual Greek word here is different. The word here, load, means backpack. So like, maybe like a man bag, or maybe like this, this backpack here that Liz got. Something which is light, which is easy to carry, not like this massive burden that he talked about in verse 2. What he means by this, I believe, is that every Christian is responsible before God for how they live. I'm not responsible for how my brother lives, my brother in Christ or my sister in Christ. I, I'm responsible for looking out for them, loving them, nurturing them, carrying their burdens, but I cannot live their Christian life for them. God will hold me accountable for how I've lived and what I've done. We'll all stand before him and give account. Each one should carry his own load. It won't matter on that day how we've measured up to other Christians. Now, I don't plan to spend much time on this verse, but verse 6. Anyone who receives instruction in the word must share all good things with his instructor. This idea of sharing here is the same word as fellowship. And you might be surprised to know this verse is actually probably, most commentators would say, is talking about supporting those financially who engage in word ministry. So the, word, the, word, the Greek word here, uh, katechumenos, talks about somebody who's been catechized, somebody who's been taught or instructed by this person. I don't plan to say much about this, but what this is saying is that if somebody is rendering you a, not that's the wrong word to use, is giving you the blessing of word ministry, it's right and proper that they should share some kind of material benefit. Doesn't mean that they should be wealthy, doesn't mean they should have you know, a private jet. What it does mean though is that Christian ministers should be supported by the church so they do not have to worry about their financial provision. But you're not paying them because it's some kind of service that's been rendered to you. It's not, a, it's not like that. The idea here is of sharing and mutual fellowship. They are blessing you through their efforts of word ministry and you are blessing them. You're sharing together in this kind of mutual fellowship together. Do you see that? It's not about just paying for a professional to come and do a service. It's about, I love this person, this person is investing in me by teaching me and catechizing, teaching me the word of God. And I want to bless them and in a sense repay them, sharing that fellowship together. It's right when we have our assistant pastor coming, it's right that we've raised money to support him as a church because he'll need to provide for his family, but also hopefully we'll be very, very blessed by his ministry when he comes, his word ministry. Now, moving swiftly on, verse 7. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. 
What we're seeing here is another warning to people that call themselves Christians who would use the freedom that they have to indulge the sinful nature, that part of us which is selfish and opposed to God. This idea of sowing is very common in the Bible, isn't it? You sow and you reap a harvest in due course. It's one of the most fundamental laws written into into nature that when you sow, you get some kind of harvest as a result. Farmer sows a certain kind of seed and he expects a certain kind of harvest. You know, it's ridiculous to expect a a farmer to plant cabbages and expect to reap corn. He will get exactly what he plants. This is the same kind of law here applied in a spiritual way. I wanted to kind of very quickly elaborate on something I spoke about last week about the sinful nature and how the sinful nature, the desires of the sinful nature are not always these kind of gross, open sins. I mean, Paul talks about the acts of the sinful nature. But you know what the sinful nature, I said last week, I think Tim Keller pointed this out, the word in Greek means over-desires, inordinate desires. So some of the things the sinful nature desires are not necessarily bad things in themselves. But the problem comes when these desires become all-consuming and become selfish and forms of idolatry. Think about food. Now, food is is a blessing from God, and we should enjoy food. I'm I'm looking forward at Christmas to a nice Stilton cheese. I love Stilton. Do you like Stilton? No. I'll eat it when you go to bed. Stilton cheese. Food is good, and food is a blessing. I'm I'm not suggesting we should eat just bread and water and not enjoy good food that God has given us. But you know what? It's a very fine line, isn't it? When we we start to enjoy food so much, it becomes a kind of form of gluttony. We're craving after it. We need it to satisfy us, and we're eating too much because we're greedy. Money is good. I'm very, very grateful to the church for paying my wages. Thank you very much. You know, money becomes a problem when you have an inordinate desire for money, and it becomes greed. Entertainment is good. You know, Annie's bought me the Downton Abbey box set for Christmas. Lilia told me. You didn't know I liked Downton Abbey, did you? But now you do. You know, the thing is, though, pleasure and entertainment, there's nothing wrong with it. There's nothing wrong with it. But when it becomes inordinate and all-consuming, then it's a problem. It's the flesh. It's the sinful nature. Employment is good. Praise God. If you have a job, you should be grateful for your job. But what if your job, your desire for success in your career becomes so overwhelming that you're willing to make any sacrifices including dispensing with church and all kinds of stuff like that, because you so want to get on in your career. Marriage is good. I'm very grateful I'm married. What if you're you're single and you so desperately want a wife or a husband that you're willing to make compromises because you so want that, because you can't be happy without that? You know, whatever it might be, pleasure or sexual activity, these things may have their place, may be good, but the sinful nature is comes, makes, makes itself apparent is when these things become so, so overwhelming that you, you literally say, I must be gratified. I must have this at all costs. And we, at least all kinds of sinful behavior and indulgences and sinful works because you must have this. You're doing all this kind of stuff to get this stuff. And a person whose life is dominated by this, not by doing the will of God, not by being led by the Holy Spirit, but actually being led by the flesh. My life is all about me and my gratification and my pleasure and my satisfaction. That person is in a very, very dangerous place spiritually. And I put it to you, 
If a person lives a life which is characterized by living for the sinful nature, he cannot expect to inherit the kingdom of God. Now, this is not talking about the struggling Christian. This is talking about somebody who's dominated by this, and it leads to immoral and sinful behavior. You know, I think the reason why people fall away from the Christian faith is not necessarily because of intellectual doubts, but because of a lack of faith, and often because the things of this world, the pleasures and the draw of the flesh become so compelling that they're willing to give up and walk away from Christ because they want things of this world even more. That's what it's talking about here in verse eight. It's a warning, a sober warning. If you spend your life dominated by this sinful nature and indulging the sinful nature, do not be surprised when you stand before God that God says, away from me, you sinner, I never knew you. And he condemns you to hell because your life, the way you lived your life, in a sense, sowing led to a particular kind of harvest, a very unpleasant and disastrous harvest for you. So it says here, God cannot be mocked. You know what this literally means? Is, you know, God cannot, cannot have his nose turned up at him. Many people in this city would disagree. They do it all, their time, all the time with their words, with their behavior. They mock God, whether they know it or not. But the point of this verse is that God will not put up with it forever. You might think that God will let it go on and on, but God will not allow mockery of his name forever. I'm not making a political point, but I was thinking, imagining some kind of like, dictatorship in the world where there's a kind of portrait of the great leader in the main square of the city. And in the night, some, some freedom fighters come or someone, and some students come and they, they deface that picture. They kind of make a mockery of the president. How would some kind of despot or tyrant act if those people were brought before him, having defaced his picture? They'd probably be executed. And how much more will the holy God, not like that unholy, ungodly dictator, how much more will the holy God deal with those people that have mocked him? I think thought they could get away with it. And the shocking thing here is this mockery is not so much mockery in words, but it's mockery of somebody who calls himself a Christian and yet constantly, consistently sows to please the sinful nature and lives a life which shows no evidence whatsoever of saving faith. Challenging, isn't it? Annie's friend, Annie was speaking to her friend yesterday and she was talking about her home village where lots of people in the village, in the, the local church, are going abroad to work in other countries. And she said, so many of those people there are living very, in her opinion, living very godless lives. They're breaking the law, they're going to other countries illegally, they're working illegally, they're doing all kinds of stuff, and they're living basically for themselves, for their career, for their progression. And she said, I can't believe Christians would act like this. I, I try to challenge them about their ungodly behavior. They say, oh, it's okay, I'll say sorry to God, and God will forgive me. Is that the kind of sorrow that God accepts, the kind of repentance? Is it really repentance at all, where you kind of plan the sin you're going to do, you do it and say, God will forgive you? Perhaps a token kind of gesture of saying sorry to God. The truth is, probably these people would do the same thing again if they had half the chance. Being sorry, being repentant means turning away from sin and not doing it anymore. This idea of reaping destruction 
actually means reaping corruption. The idea is of a field which has full of rotten, it's full of rotten crops, rotten vegetables or whatever it might be, rotten grain, which is absolutely useless to the farmer. Even a true Christian can forfeit the joy that could be theirs and the, progressive, the progression in the Christian life and the, the growth and all these things because they don't learn to crucify the flesh but actually indulge the sinful nature. It's very sad, isn't it, when you see a Christian who's just lost their way. They're a genuine Christian. They love the law, but actually they've kind of lost it somehow because they've been seduced by the things of this world and by the flesh. But more positively, in verse 9, sorry, in verse 8, the one who sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. So Paul talks about living a life in step with the Spirit, putting to death the sinful nature, and living for God. He calls that, he compares that to sowing to please the Spirit. For the person that does that, the reward, the harvest will be eternal life. We know, don't we, from the rest of Scripture, this is not talking about salvation by works, it's by faith we are saved. You know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but receive eternal life. It's a gift of God. It's not saying that if you do all these good things that somehow you'll receive eternal life. What it is saying, though, here is that if you are a true Christian, born again by the Holy Spirit, there will be a vital, living, outworking of that in your life because the Holy Spirit has changed you from within and good fruit will come from your character in increasing measure. And all this can be summarized in two words, doing good. Verse 9, let us not become weary in doing good for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Isn't it easy to become weary in doing good? You think, let's go back to how I used to be. It's the easy option. You know, the idea here is of, um, what was it? The phrase translated here, lose heart, was used for the kind of fear and weariness a woman experiences during labor before delivery. So you can imagine a woman, you probably don't want to imagine a woman in labor, having been at the birth of two children, it's quite traumatic. The woman is weary, just can't wait for the baby to be born. The woman doesn't have a choice. She has to go through with it. But imagine if she could just give up. The baby would not be born, if that were possible. That's the idea here. That's the same word used. Don't give up before your reward is given to you. Too many people have. Let's make sure it doesn't happen to us. Don't become weary in doing good. Remember, friends, doing good in the Bible is not just words but actions as well. Let's not love with words and tongue but with actions and in truth. I want people to look at this church and say, I may not agree with the doctrine of this church. I may not agree with what you believe in. Hopefully they will come to their senses and believe. But you know what? This is a church where you practice where you preach. You practice what you preach. You're not a group of hypocrites. You're not saying one thing and doing another. But you're a community of people that really, really love each other. You do good. And if we had to summarize you, you are a people that do good. Verse 10, therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Now, just very briefly on this, it's a spiritual principle that we have a primary responsibility for those in our family, particularly our church family. 
I am most responsible for my two children, for my family. I I'm, cannot possibly provide for all the children in the world as much as I'd like to. But God has given me two precious children to look after, and I am particularly responsible for them. It doesn't mean I'm not concerned about others, but they are the ones that God has given me primarily to look after. And I believe this principle works spiritually as well. We Christians, we are primarily to, to focus on the needs of other Christians, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. So this is our family. These are the ones for whom we have primary responsibility. And it's a powerful testimony to the world if we love each other and care for each other. But that does not exclude care for the wider world and love and concern for people outside the church. And that's actually vital as well, that we should have that. That's the mission of the church, preaching the gospel to the lost and also trying to alleviate the needs of those who are poor and destitute, whatever it might be, reaching out to a hurting world with the gospel, with the Bible, with the message of Christ, but also reaching out with practical love and concern. And that applies to you in your workplace tomorrow morning when you come across non-believers who may be in need in various ways, you can come alongside them and bless them and point to the life and hope that you have. But friends, I do believe it's important the meeting, the gathering of believers, the church community should be of primary importance. And I would suggest to you that if, if for you this is out of kilter, that for you, whatever it might be, your family or your hobbies or whatever it might be, has become more important than actually meeting with God's people and being part of this community or a church community, and I would suggest that's, that's out of kilter, that's unbalanced. Make sure you look after the church family first and foremost, and then also look out to the wider world and love them and do good. Well, time went again really fast, but let's have two minutes for any questions or comments. Um, there's a microphone around somewhere, I think. Oh yeah, right there. I'm dopey, I don't see anything. Okay. Would anybody like to comment or ask any questions? If not, we'll pray. Seemed like a good idea at the time. Okay, thank you, Phil. Thanks, Ben. Um, I think there's a connection between where he starts, right, right back with uh, the whole circumcision thing and the attitudes that you've been describing so helpfully this evening. Because I think there's a connection between the gospel that we believe. So if, if we basically got a gospel of works so that we think our standing is because of how well we've done, then I think that's going to produce this, this mindset which you, you described of, of provoking, which way around was it? Um, envying people who you think are doing better than you and provoking people who are doing worse than you. So uh, I, th I think it, it, it does connect up. And like, like you're saying, if, if the gospel's really got hold of us in terms of how we relate to God and how we relate to ourselves, uh, it therefore affects how we relate to other people and the sort of attitudes we take to them. Yeah, that was my comment. Like there's no more so I don't think we'll sing our, our, second, our last hymn unless you particularly want to but I think it'll be good to pray so Chris would you like to come lead us in prayer
So we have opportunity to go into smaller groups of uh, four or five people to share with one another. And um, we, we've had a lot of really helpful material to furnish us with encouragement in our praying tonight. Uh, before we do split up into those groups, let me lead you in a prayer. Our Father, we pray that you might be with us and you might speak to us, and we thank you for what you have said to us this night. We pray that the things that you have spoken to us and perhaps spoken to us rather deeply may not be snatched away, but we would be learners from you and that what you have said to us tonight, we will be careful to uh, nurture and to respond to in a way that brings great glory to Jesus Christ. We ask, Father, where there is a need for repentance, that you would please give us that grace and the courage to turn and uh, to do what you want. Where we are timid, we pray that you would grant us grace to be more strengthened and um, bold and energetic in uh, following the ways that you set before us. We bless you, our Father, that in all of this we have lavish grace, the grace that we heard described this morning, and the precious gift of your indwelling Holy Spirit. And we do thank you that we come to you in weakness, which is the best place for us to be, so that we might receive from you and the glory goes only to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.